Maybe you know uh, that last year, the shooter responsible for killing 17 people and injuring another 17 at Parkland High School in Florida was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Uh, The laws in Florida actually require a jury to unanimously recommend the death penalty, and three of the jurors in the case of Nicholas Cruz believed that Mr. Cruz's mental health was a mitigating factor, so they spared him from execution. This was not satisfying to most of the parents of the children who had been killed or injured. They wanted Nicholas Cruz to die. And with this verdict, they thought that justice had not been done. And they did not understand why the court had shown mercy to the young man who had not shown mercy to 34 of their children. We can all empathize with what these parents are feeling, although maybe not to the same degree. I mean, even if we disagree with the death penalty, we know what it's like to yearn for justice. There are wrongs in our lives that we need God to make right, suffering that we need him to end. Justice can be slow going, though. Our human courts, our human systems, our earth doesn't always get it right. Justice delayed is not necessarily justice denied, though. You see, as Christians, we believe that the Parkland shooter, Nicholas Cruz, will eventually, eventually get what he truly deserves, whatever that is. In fact, all wrongs, all wrongs will be righted. We believe God is just. And in God's courtroom, all things will eventually be made right. But while we wait for that verdict, it does require patience. It requires perseverance. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning, patience while we wait for justice. Uh, We're in the middle of a series here at Rooftop. It's called More and More, and it's a study of Paul's two letters to the Thessalonians. And in these letters, as we've learned, he talks about many things. He talks about moral purity. He talks about the importance of hard work. He talks about loving one another. And he also talks about enduring while we wait for God's justice to arrive, which it surely will. A message which surely resonated with the Thessalonians and might, depending on our circumstances, resonate with us. Like I said, maybe you know, Paul actually wrote two letters to the Thessalonians and we finished up his first letter last week and are moving on to the second. So let me go ahead and read to you our passage for the morning. It comes from... 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, Because your faith is growing more and more. And the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith and all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. 
This will happen. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of our Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified and his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Now, as we jump into the second letter, let's go ahead and reset the scene. Uh, Paul, the author, was an early convert to Christianity who, after his conversion, hit the road and traveled around the Roman Empire preaching the gospel and starting churches. And on the first trip that he took, one of the first towns that he visited was the lovely seaside village of Thessaloniki. And he started a church there in this town. But as we found, uh, the message was a bit too radical for the local leaders, for the Jewish and the Roman leaders. The, the Jewish leaders thought that this idea that uh, Jesus was the Messiah was blasphemous. And they also thought that the notion that God loved everybody, Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews, they thought, a lot of them thought that that was just heretical. And, and the Romans thought that the suggestion that Jesus was Lord, even over Caesar, was just seditious. So in a coordinated effort, the Jewish and the Roman leaders ran Paul out of town and he barely escaped with his life. But Paul was in Thessalonica long enough to develop quite a bond with the members of the young church that he had started. And in an effort to stay in touch with them, he, he actually wrote them a follow-up letter with some instructions. And after reading this letter, the Thessalonians actually had some questions. This makes sense, right? Have you ever read the Bible and had some questions? Well, they had some questions. So they did what we don't get to do. They sent a message back to Paul through Timothy, probably, who was like mailmanning these letters with some questions for Paul. And then Paul wrote another letter. And that's the letter we're going to be studying through Labor Day, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, part two. Now, the greeting to the second letter, which I just read to you, it actually sounds an awful lot like the greeting to the first letter. And in fact, it's nearly word for word verbatim. The author gives a salutation from himself and his co-writers, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, here to serve you again. But then he moves into a protracted thanksgiving, which is sort of standard for how Paul begins his letters. He begins his letters with long, flowing, personable, uh, prayerful thank yous. And in this long thanksgiving, he praises God for the Thessalonians' faith and the love they have for each other. He says he actually boasts about this faith and love to all the churches because it is growing more and more. Paul says that the Thessalonians are a model congregation among all the churches in Asia Minor. He's so proud of who they've become, gold star to the Thessalonian church. But even in this Thanksgiving, I'm actually struck by a couple things that I think are worth talking about with you this morning. As Paul writes, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing, series title alert, more and more. And the love all of you have for one another is increasing. So let me draw your attention to two details here 
this morning, which actually challenged me. First, see that Paul is not thanking the Thessalonians for their faith and love. He's thanking whom? God, right. Just, we're clear. G-O-D, God. He's thanking God. Why? Because God is responsible for all good things. Faith and love being two of the goodest. And even back in his first letter, Paul seems especially concerned with these two virtues, as he wrote in 1 Thessalonians 3. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your what? Your faith and your love. For some reason, these are the two things that Paul reduces Christianity to. Faith and love. Trust in God and love. Being loved by God and love for other people. And these are the things that Paul has been praying for, for this little beloved congregation. Faith and love. And he prayed for them back in letter one. Night and day, we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. And we also pray that the Lord may make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. So faith and love. And this is an answer of prayer for Paul. Faith and love are what he's been praying for and it worked. Finally an answered prayer. In the dark, oppressive world of the Roman Empire, the small church in Thessalonica had become a beacon of faith and love. And while they are to be commended for this, though, it's not really their doing. Again, it's God's. Only God can make these things grow. Only God can cultivate faith and love on our own lives. We can't, like, snap our fingers and make that happen. This is why we need to create space in our lives for God to do his work. Space in our lives for worship, for study, for prayer, for community, for God to do his work of cultivating faith and love. And this is why we need to thank him when he does that. And this is the other detail that I want to draw your attention to. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so. We ought always to thank God for you, and rightly so. Paul felt an obligation, an ought, to, to praise God for his work. Being a Christian means to grow in faith and love and gratitude. Thanksgiving reminds us that we are not responsible for the good things in our lives. Thanksgiving lets God know that we understand this, that we don't take his blessings for granted. But Thanksgiving can be hard. We, we fill up our, our prayer time mostly with requests, right? Lord, give me this. Lord, I need that. We forget to be grateful. Uh, when I was growing up, my, my mother uh, was determined that I and my siblings did not forget to be grateful. Please and thank you were the law in my house. Also, she would make us write thank you notes for every gift we received, birthday, Christmas, etc. She wanted us to learn the discipline of gratitude through doing. I found this inconvenient. And I came up with ways to get around it. After getting a high school graduation gifts, for example, I designed and printed up a form letter with blanks I would fill in. Dear blank, thank you for the blank. I enjoyed blanking it, <laughs> reading, using, playing with. I don't know what sort of graduation gifts I played with. Yay! <laughs> I thought this was funny. I'm not sure that my grandmother thought it was funny when she got her thank you note. 
form letter thank you note in the mail. But this is something we try to practice as a church leadership team too. We try to practice the discipline of gratitude, which starts by being grateful for our people, for our volunteers. Uh, writing thank you notes is actually part of leadership around here. Uh, after a very hard VBS last month, for example, Erin Schragi, our, our volunteer, Rooftots Kids Director, she wrote 63, 63 handwritten thank you notes to all the VBS volunteers, 63 handwritten notes. She got them out within like five days. She even wrote, Erin even wrote handwritten thank you notes to her own children. I mean, if you're going to do that, you're going to forget your own kids, right? Not Erin Shiragi. She does this every year, 63, including her own children. Why? She knows she ought to. It is right to do so. She's genuinely grateful, but not just to the volunteers, but genuinely grateful to God. The Lord Jesus gave her those volunteers. Jesus gave them the time, the energy, the means. They get the note. God gets the gratitude. I mean... This is meaningful to me. Whenever anybody tells me, hey, thanks for the sermon, or thanks for the message, or thanks for the meeting, or thanks for the whatever, I'm like, you're welcome, sure. It doesn't do much for me. It's not why I'm in here, in this. Tell me I praise God for what he did through you in me today. Now we're talking. So what are you grateful for? How is the Lord cultivating faith in your own life? How is the Lord growing love in your own family, in your own small group, in your own church, assuming he has? Have you thanked him for it? It is right to do so. It is wrong not to. Reading on, we learn that Paul is not just grateful to God for the Thessalonians' faith and love. He's grateful also for their perseverance. As he writes in verse 4, Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith and all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. So apparently after Paul had gotten chased out of town, the, the leaders of the city did not stop. They, they actually turned their attention to the members of Paul's church. Uh, remember that the leaders of Thessalonica, they felt very threatened by Paul's ministry and these new Christians. Uh, the Jewish leaders thought that they were stealing sheep, and the Roman leaders thought that they were undermining the government. And Paul was actually very concerned that this thing would happen. He was concerned that the leaders of Thessalonica would harass his church or, or, or confiscate their property or throw them in prison or chase them out of town. And apparently that indeed was happening. The town leaders had not given up. But Praise God, neither had the Thessalonians. They are suffering well through it. They continue to meet. They continue to, to grow more and more in faith and love. And Paul said it is, is, it is this perseverance through these trials which is evidence of the genuineness of their faith, which is what inspires such gratitude inside of them, as he puts it in verse 5. All this... Your perseverance. It's evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. 
for which you are suffering. This is something that could be hard for us to understand, that hard times in our lives are often given to, are oftentimes given by God to us so that our faith and love can be tested and proved genuine. As the Apostle Peter writes, Though you suffer grief and all kinds of trials, these have come so that, there's a purpose here, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. It is hardship which reveals the integrity of our faith. It is evidence, it's proof. It's the burning of hard circumstances which reveals who is a true Christian. It's kind of like the Cardinals these days, right? This season is revealing for who the true fans are. There's nothing quite like being in last place to make you decide if you want to keep caring. Same thing with Jesus, but much different. Rooting for a historically bad baseball team is evidence that you really care. Following Jesus through trials and hardship and persecution and confusion and grief is also proof that you mean it. I mean, it's, it's easy to, to root for Jesus when you're winning. It's relatively easy to be a Cardinals fan over the decades. It's harder to cheer him on when you have no idea where he is or even when it looks like he's losing hanging on a cross. Who wants to be on that team? But this is precisely, precisely what brings Paul such joy. Even without him there, he's not even there to coach the effort. And even in the midst of all kinds of trials, they are pushing on. They are not giving up. They are worshiping and serving and tithing and preaching and following hard after Christ. The faith inside of them is real. They're real fans. No matter how bad the pitching is in the kingdom of God. They're going to go to the grave with King Jesus. Having said that, Paul surely knows that they're discouraged. Even faithful followers of Jesus can get bummed out. I mean, a lot of us have been following Jesus for a very long time. And yeah, you know, we're in it to win it, you know, and we'll get them next year. But you still get pretty bummed with the waiting and the suffering and the losing so Paul writes to them and to us. He writes to commend us for our faith and perseverance, but also to assure us the losing won't last. He goes on in verse 6. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction. They will be shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day, the day he comes to be glorified and his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony. Basically, basically, our lives won't always suck. This, this is the passage. 
Our lives won't always suck. I mean, it's not like they actually suck, but they kind of really do suck. But they won't always suck. Because Jesus will arrive to remove the suckiness. The poetry of my rhetoric, it's unparalleled, right? <laughs> and specifically, our lives don't always suck in, in two ways. First, Jesus will arrive to pay back trouble for those who trouble us. There's a day in the future, the day of the Lord, Yom Yahweh in Hebrew, when the Lord will be revealed, Paul says. This will happen in a blaze of glory with powerful angels. The Lord will arrive to punish those who have not been punished. Who does this include? It includes Nicholas Cruz. It includes all the people who could have helped or stopped him, but didn't. It includes all the terrible people you read about in the news and all the terrible people that you don't. It includes all the leaders in Thessalonica who oppressed God's people there and the enemies of God who persecute Christians around the world. It includes hypocritical Christians who instead of being agents of faith and love are instead vessels of hate and greed. It includes the people who have hurt and abused you over the years. It includes the people who are ruining our city, whether it's the politicians, the violent offenders, the greedy, the racist, the immoral, Basically, it includes anybody who has not found holiness in Jesus. Those people, Paul says, will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. They will be shut out. Now, I don't know about you, but I have complicated emotions when I read this verse. I'm not sure how to read it. Am I supposed to be cheering this on? Yay! Everlasting destruction! For the ungodly, yay! Burn them, Lord. Get them. And also, it seems a, a bit extreme. I mean, do all sinners deserve everlasting destruction? I mean, maybe Nicholas Cruz, but even then, should there be no end to his punishment? And what about the less guilty sinners like adulterers and thieves and liars? Should they suffer everlastingly for relatively temporary earthly crimes? Punishment should fit the crime or not? This is a, 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 a big topic, but... The logic of hell, and that's what we're talking about. We're talking about hell. The logic of hell is complicated. You see, relatively minor crimes on earth aren't actually that minor from heaven's perspective. When we sin, we tell God we don't want anything to do with them. We tell God that we want to do morality Life, our way, not his. God, we know that, you know, we have been created in your image. And we know that this is how you think we should do our lives, spend our money, do marriage, do sex. We, we know all that, but nah. That's what we want. We want it our way. And here's the thing. In hell, God makes that arrangement permanent. Paul writes in verse 9 that sinners are shut out from the presence of the Lord. This is what hell is. It's separation from God. And there's actually a certain logic to this, even a certain necessity. When we, tell, when we sin, we tell God that we don't want anything to do with him. 
So at the judgment, God gives us that. Okay, okay. You said you didn't want anything to do with me. Now you don't have to put up with me at all. I'm the source of all light, life, and goodness. And hereafter, you shall know only darkness. It's what you want. That's sad, but it's not inevitable. Sinners don't have to go to hell. You don't have to go to hell. And even though it's sad and tragic, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to pretend to be at least a, a little excited to not have to deal with sinners in the world. I mean, yay for hell. I mean, imagine, imagine if you will, a world without Vladimir Putin. Yay! Imagine a world without people who kidnap children and use them as soldiers and sex slaves. Yay! Imagine a world without government officials in China and Iran who imprison Christians and other religious minorities. Imagine a world without doctors who abort children for profit. Imagine a world without gun violence and meth dealers and loan sharks. Imagine those people getting what they really deserve. Yay! When can it be so, Father? God says they will get what they deserve. Eventually they will. They will be shut out. God is just. His enemies will get what they deserve. As will we. And this is the other thing Paul says to encourage us as we wait for justice. And I'll leave you with this. You know that if we get to see the glory of God, it's not because of anything we've done or anything we are. Paul says that Jesus will pay back trouble to those who trouble us, but he will also arrive to bring relief to those who are troubled. We are troubled. We are troubled by the sin in the world. We are troubled by the sin in our own hearts. You see, we can't lose sight of the fact that the greatest source of trouble in our lives, it's not Vladimir Putin. It's not Nicholas Cruz. It's not Fox News or CNN or your neighbor or your boss or, God forbid, your mother-in-law. The greatest source of trouble in your life is yourself. It's us. It's our sin. It's our greed. It's our lust. It's our pride. It's our ignorance. It's our depression. It's our anxiety. But this is why Jesus arrived, to pay back trouble for those who trouble us, to bring relief to those who are troubled. The Greek word for relief here, the Greek word for relief here is a really fun Greek word. It's the word anesis. It means rest, relief, freedom, peace. That's what a lot of people who call the Anesis Spine Center in Madison, Wisconsin are expecting when they schedule an appointment. They want relief. It's what troubled married couples are hoping for when they call Anesis Counseling in Louisville, Kentucky. It's what people with foot pain are desperate for when they call Anesis Podiatry Center relief for your feet. It's what travelers are looking for when they call the Anesis Hotel. Oh, I need a place to just rest, relax. It's what people who are looking for some new piece of leather are looking for when they call Anissa's Creative Leather Works. Maybe they need a new saddle. Big new leather saddle. Their old one's kind of rough and sore on their rump. I need relief for my rump, sore rump. Maybe you need relief for your rump. Maybe you want relief from your troubles. It's a really easy joke here to make about our need for pitching relief. 
but I'll just let it speak for itself. Maybe you need relief. Your biggest trouble, it's not out there though. Your biggest trouble is the sin and the selfishness which is corrupting your soul and preventing you from knowing his goodness and glory. Your biggest trouble is sickness and cancer or death which is coming for you. Your, your, your biggest trouble is you. But Jesus came to bring anesis, to bring relief. How did he do that? Well, he came to earth to show us how to live. An example we should follow. He died on the cross for our sins, a sacrifice we should accept. He rose from the dead to defeat the power of death, a promise we should claim. He ascended into heaven where he rules from God's throne, a reality we should submit to, and he's coming again. He's coming again, Paul says, to bring relief. He's coming again to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed. You have faith. That's the difference between those who will be shut out and those who will find glory in his presence. That's the difference between those who will know more trouble in hell and those who will find everlasting relief. It's belief. Belief leads to relief. Belief that Jesus is who he says he is and will do what he says he will. If there's anything to be grateful for this morning, it's that. It's that the gospel can bring relief. Maybe you don't know that gospel. Maybe you're still troubled by the sin in your own heart. Your Father in heaven doesn't want you to be troubled. He wants you to know his peace. He wants you to know his freedom, his relief. God wants to heal you, wants to heal your soul, wants to heal your marriage, wants to crack your back, heal your feet, heal your rump. He wants to do this before the Lord Jesus comes and shuts you out. 